We're in the second part, the second installment of this series we're calling The Big Picture. The premise of the series is that sometimes we can get caught up in the minutia of our lives. We can get dialed into the details of our lives. We can get caught up in just the urgency, the, the hurry, the busyness of what's going on right in front of us. And we can lose sight of the big picture of our lives. And so over the course of five weeks, we're stopping, we're pausing, we're zooming out, we're pulling back, and we're looking at the big picture. We're, at, we're asking the question, who are we, why are we here, and where do we fit in this huge picture of God's story, the arc of history according to God. And today we tackle one of the most difficult challenging philosophical theological problems and questions uh, that that each of us has and that each of us struggle with in our lives we're tackling the problem of evil last week we, we looked at creation we, we're looking at creation the fall rebellion redemption and restoration and today we're looking at uh, the fall so let me ask you let me start off by asking this question how many of you do not like to be told what to do Raise your hand. You do not like to be told what to do. Okay, good. How many of you are not raising your hand because you do not want to be told to raise your hand, right? Right? Yeah. Thank you. Um, good to admit it. Uh, we don't like to be told what to do. That's part of who we are as human beings. Nobody likes that. When you're a little kid, we used to have a phrase. When somebody got too bossy or tried to tell you what to do, we had a phrase. And that was, who died and made you king? Right? Somebody tried to tell you what to do. You're like, hey, listen. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. When I was a little kid, I just didn't like to be told what to do. I got a little bit older, and it became a little more sophisticated. My, my you know, who died and made you king. I came across a, um, a writer named uh, Richard Burton, and uh, uh, Richard Francis Burton, a 19th century uh, spy, soldier, ethnologist, writer. This guy was like a renaissance man, and he wrote a poem, and his poem said this. It says... Do what thy manhood bids thee do. From none but self expect applause. He noblest lives and noblest dies who makes and keeps his self-made laws. That was Richard Burton. I should have known from the mustache not to trust this guy. But, no. Just kidding, David. Um, I read that as a teenager and I thought, man... That, I like that. He noblest lives and noblest dies who makes and keeps his self-made laws. What that means is he's saying your noblest, highest self is when you make up the laws for yourself. You don't let anybody tell you what to do. You don't let anybody tell you what's right and wrong. You don't let anybody have the authority over you. You're the final authority over your, your life. You set the, the dictates of your own uh, morality and of your own ethics. Nobody can tell you what to do. And I like that as a teenager because I grew up in a church where there were a lot of rules and there were a lot of folks that would tell you what to do. You know, folks would say you can't go here and you can't do this and you can't do that. And so I liked the idea that somebody's saying, no, you don't have to listen to anybody. You can do whatever. I remember we would have, maybe some of you will remember this back in the day. I don't think they do this much anymore. But we even had, like, seminars about what music you could and could not listen to. We would have seminars about, uh, you know, certain, certain rock music. If you, if you took the record, this is back in vinyl days, you took the record and you play it backwards, and it would have a message going, on, you know. So we'd have these, and you'd play it. And I remember, like, the youth leader, they'd put it on the turntable, and they'd put it back, and they'd like, 
you know? And they're like, did you hear it? It said, I worship Satan and I love Satan. Did you hear that? It's like, I didn't totally hear that, but maybe, you know. I put a country record on backwards and the guy got his wife back, his dog back, his truck back. It was amazing. It was totally amazing. Um, but I like the idea that, you know, I didn't have to listen to anybody. I didn't have to follow anybody's rules. And so I adopted this philosophy for myself uh, for a time in my life. But here's what I found. I found that my own self-made rules, the rules that I made for myself, did not actually help me achieve the values or the goals that I desired. So one of my values, one of my goals was happiness. Like most people, I wanted to be happy. But the laws that I carved for myself, the path that I carved for myself was not leading me to happiness. It was leading me to unhappiness and, and frustration and at times even despair. One of my values was freedom. I said, man, I want to be, be free. I'm going to make my own laws. That was part of the appeal of the whole thing. But my own path, the rules that I, that I wrote for myself were not leading me to freedom. They were leading me to bondage. They were leading me to, to, to uh, a life that wasn't free. One of my goals, one of my hopes, one of my values was purpose. I wanted to live a life of purpose and have meaning. But the path that I was carving for myself wasn't leading me there. And so then when I would at times try to grab a hold of a higher moral standard, a higher law for myself, maybe something that I grab out of the scripture or grab out of you know, what my dad taught or my mom or my grandfather or whatever, I found that it was very, very difficult for me to actually achieve those goals, to live according to those principles, to live according to those precepts. So it was, it was sort of a twofold problem. The laws that I was making for myself were not leading me where I wanted to go. And when I would adopt a higher law, I found it almost impossible, very difficult if not impossible, to achieve that. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one, even though I don't know everybody in this auditorium, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that has experienced this issue of failing to meet even your own expectations. Right? All of us do this. Maybe for you, it's, you know, you, you say, look, I'm going to stop worrying. That's going to be my, my rule for myself. I'm going to stop worrying. And then suddenly you start to find yourself worrying. And then you find yourself worrying about the fact that you're worrying. And then you find yourself worrying about the fact that you're worrying about the fact that you're worrying. Now you're, now you're in a cocoon of worry and you're freaking out, right? Or maybe it's procrastination. You say, look, I don't, my rule for myself is I'm going to stop procrastinating. I'm going to get on track. I'm going to pursue what I'm going to, you know, what I said I was going to. I'm going to get that education. Or I'm going to get that new job. I'm going to get up off this couch. I'm going to go do something with my life. And yet we struggle to meet those expectations for ourselves. Maybe it's something that you're doing that you know you shouldn't be doing, right? Maybe it's you're looking at material on the computer and you go, Man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be looking at this. I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop this. And yet you find that, man, you just fall back into it. Or maybe it can be anything. It can be drug, drugs or alcohol or, or whatever it is. Gossiping, envy, whatever. We all have these vices that we struggle with. And we try to, we try to get over them. We try to push past them. We try to get beyond them. And yet we find that we fail to meet our own expectations. So the question for this sermon is this. Why? Why do we fail? Why do we fail to live up to our own expectations? When we create our self-made laws, they don't lead us where we want to go. And when we try to adopt the, the higher laws, we fail. 
Why do our marriages fall apart? Why do our finances fall apart? Why do our goals fall apart? Why do schools fall apart? Why do governments falter? Right? Why is there failure in the world? And I'm not just talking about personal failure. Why is societal failure? Why does society as a whole inflict pain? Why is there heartbreak? Why is there oppression? Why is there injustice? Why is there evil in the world? Why are human beings in the condition that we're in? Why in the United States in 2016 can we still predict life expectancy and health outcomes based on zip code? Why is that? That's not right. That's unjust. Why in the United States do we still experience uh, relational, personal, and institutional racism and ethnocentrism? Why is that happening in 2016? Why in a nation of wealth are there so many people who have so little? Why do we allow for educational inequality based on income? Why are we in this condition? Why are human beings in this condition? If you were here last week, you heard me preach on the creation. And I talked about the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei means the image of God. We are made in God's image. image In His likeness we are made. So if we are made... If that's true, we are made in the image of God. How did we get from the image of God version of our life to this broken, heartbroken, unjust life that we see all around us? How did our world go from the image of God to where we are right now? And maybe the bigger question is, with the advent of technology and information and communication and, and all that we've, all of the advances we've made, why can't we stop it? Why can't we fix it? Why does the world seem to persist in this state of brokenness? Why are we incapable of addressing it? We look at a lot of factors when we're looking at evil in the world and brokenness in the world, and we can point to a lot of factors. Poverty is a major factor for why things are the way they are. Uh, mental health disorders, abuse, abuse, greed, et- ethnocentrism, lust for power. These are all issues that we look at and we say, yeah, these are, these, are, these are problems, right? But these problems are symptoms of a greater problem. These aren't the source of the problem. These are symptoms of an underlying, more pervasive, deeper, more profound problem in the human condition. These are symptoms of the state of the human soul. Because we can look back, we can look all around the world and we can look back throughout all time and we don't find a time or a place where people weren't greedy. We don't find a time or a place where people didn't hurt each other. We don't find a time and a place where there was perfect harmony, where people were free from sickness and pain and disease. Because there's something deeply and profoundly and tragically broken in the human condition itself. The problem of evil. And today, we're going to explore what that brokenness is all about. So, we're diving into the deep end of the pool today, guys. This is the heavy stuff. Last week was the creation. Made in the image of God. That's inspiring. Today is the condition that we have found ourselves in as a society. Where it's a broken condition. I don't like preaching this sermon. I want to preach the redemption and the restoration sermon. But those are coming, okay? Just know that those are coming. Um, Today, as we look at the big picture of our lives, we have to ask ourselves, what took us from the the Imago Dei to the brokenness, frailty, and discord that we see? When and how did this devolution happen? The book of Genesis provides us with one of the most famous 
and enduring stories. Everybody in here knows this story, the story of Adam and Eve. And the story is somewhat controversial in Christian circles because some read it primarily as allegory or poetry or metaphor, and others read it more literally or historically. But for today's purposes, I want to pull out from this story the rich and powerful meaning of the story and the truths that it describes about us, about the human condition. I want, I want to look at this story not for the mechanics, but for the meat of what it can tell us about who we are as a people. This story is called by theologians the fall. Theologians have called this story the fall or the fall of man. Uh, and this story captures the essence, the very core of human nature. It answers the question, why? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil and despair in the world? And the story begins earlier, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, where you get this image of God having this loving, intimate relationship with the people that he created out of the dust of the earth. And he has this love, and he places them in this garden, and they're totally taken care of. There's nourishment, there's, there's food, there's no hunger, there's no pain, there's no work, there's no death, there's no sorrow, there's nothing that would bring discomfort or discord into their life until they have this encounter in Genesis chapter 3, this strange uh, rendezvous uh, with temptation. Now, in, the, in Genesis 2, God says to them, he says, you, I'm putting you in this garden, you can eat from every tree in this garden. Every tree in this garden is for you. I've made all of this for you. But there is this one tree that you cannot eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a lot of people would say, you know, why would he put that in there? Why would he add something that could could potentially lead them off a cliff, right? And I believe, and I think there are a lot of reasons, but I believe one of the main reasons is that he wants to give them the opportunity to make a choice as to whether or not to follow him or not. Because if he didn't have that tree in in the garden... If he said, look, I'm putting you in here, and you can do no wrong. You can't choose whether or not to follow me because I'm not going to give you the option. That wouldn't be love. That wouldn't be a relationship. That would be them. That would be humanity being chess pieces on a cosmic chess game that are being moved around by God. That would be humanity being automatons that are just doing what they're programmed to do. When he says, I'm going to give you a choice, what he's saying is, I'm giving you the freedom to choose. You can follow me. You can love me. Or you can disobey me. And and alienate yourself from me. That's up to you. So he puts this tree there, and then Adam and Eve in this story, they come to this tempter, this talking serpent, who says to them in Genesis chapter 3, he says, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So what he's doing here is appealing to her sense of fairness and, and, and God's lack of generosity. Notice he totally misconstrues what God said. He says, is it, is it true that you can't eat from any tree in here? You're not, you guys aren't allowed to eat from any tree in here, right? And that's not what God said. God said you can eat from every tree except one. But he immediately puts the, the question out in a way to evoke this sort of sense of I deserve, right? So how, how many of you know that most temptations begin with I deserve, right? You know what? I deserve a little, I deserve a little bit of, I deserve a little more money. I deserve a little more respect around here. I deserve a little elevated status. I deserve a little downtime. I deserve a little bit of entertainment, right? Most of our temptation comes out of the sense of we deserve something that we don't get. So he, he steps out with that and says, you know, is it true that you guys aren't allowed to eat from me? So immediately she's on the defensive. The woman said to the serpent, 
She said, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat, from the fruit, uh, eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not even touch it or you will die. We won't get into that, but she actually misconstrues what God said because he never said you can't touch it. She's starting to get religious and, and adding rules. Um, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. So now he's directly contradicting God. God said you were going to die. I'm telling you, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will, here's what we focus on today. You will be like God. You will make your own rules. You will know good from evil and you will get to decide what's right and wrong. You eat from this tree. God knows that you're going to be on his level. It's not going to be God over you. You're going to be on the same level with God. You can say to God, who died and made you king? You can look at God. If you eat this fruit and say, you're not the boss of me. I'm on par with you. Now, this is appealing to Eve, right? Because right now, all she knows is the serpent. She knows God. She knows her husband, Adam. And the invitation to eat is an invitation to elevate herself to deity, to to let go of her humanity and to grasp deity. When the woman saw, it says, or perceived that the fruit of the tree was good for food, notice what she does, good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They're both standing there. You know, he's standing right there. He, He knew all the rules. He knew what God said and he's taking it also. Now, notice in Eve's analysis, she doesn't say, I wonder what God wants me to do. Right? She perceived that it was good. How did she perceive that it was good? She perceived that it was good because the tempter, the serpent, told her it was good. Why would she believe what the serpent told her? Because what the serpent told her was uh, uh, speaking to her own sense of pride, her own desire to be like God, her implicit, inherent desire to elevate herself to the status of God. And so she says, it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it's going to make me really smart. And I'm going to be above every, everybody else. That's her analysis. So what he did is he touches on her sense of pride. He appeals to her sense of pride. And when pride kicks in to our lives, then anything, anything can happen. We cannot. Every other flaw, every other sin, every other foible traces its root back to pride. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said on this. Lewis says, the essential vice, the utmost evil, he says, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that, those are mere flea bites. That's nothing in comparison. It was through pride, he says, that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. The story of the fall reveals to us that the source of all pain and all suffering and all violence and all trouble on the earth is our own inclination and our own inherent desire to be our own God. Another way of saying it is this. The universal problem underlying all evil and brokenness in the world is the human tendency for self-worship. We want to make our own laws, our self-made laws, and we want to follow those All brokenness, all injustice, all pain leads back or is precipitated by this desire in the heart of of the human being 
for self-worship. And here are three things I just want to give you today that, are, that flow out of this self-worship. Number one, self-worship alienates us from God. You cannot be in a relationship with someone whose authority you do not respect. Right? If you've ever been on a job, I mean, you know, this is, this is, I've made this blunder when I was a young guy a lot of times. You ever been on a job and, and you, you think you're the smartest guy on the job? You're smarter than the manager. You're smarter than the boss. You're smarter than the owner. You're smarter than everybody, right? You don't respect their authority. You quickly become alienated from that job. You get, you get a little slip in your little mailbox that says, thank you for your service. Um, maybe you should go somewhere where you, you know, where there's smarter people than you, right? If you're on a team and you don't respect the authority of your coach, you will alienate yourself from that team, right? If you're in a school and you don't respect the authority of your teacher, your professor, you will eventually alienate yourself from that person. If you're in the military and you don't follow orders, you don't, you, you don't respect the authority of your, of your commander, you will quickly find that there are other options for you. Um, in fact, I was, re- I was listening to a podcast um, um, about the soldier Bo Bergdahl who, had, uh, who, who was captured by the Taliban. And it, it's, a, it's a podcast um, called Serial, S-E-R-I-L, not, not the kind you eat. But, um, and, and in this podcast, they interview him, and you get this sense that somewhere in his, deep in his mind, he came to the conclusion that he knew better than his commanding officers and that he didn't need to listen to them, and he didn't need to follow orders, that he would make up his own rules. And when you hear him talk, I think... As you're listening to him, you, you see that he starts to recognize the foolishness of his decision. One, one of the quotes from the podcast, he says this. He says, doing what I did, because what he did was wander off from his post. And, and, and his idea was that he was going to sort of run off on his own and, 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 and become like a, a, a super, uh, like a super soldier. He says, doing what I did is me saying that I'm like Jason Bourne from the Bourne Identity. He said, I had this fantastic idea that I was going to prove to the world that I was the real thing. And so he wandered off from his post and he wandered in to the Taliban. He alienated himself from the, the, the chain of command that he was in. This is what happens to us when we don't respect the authority of God in our own lives. In fact, the very first thing that Adam and Eve did when they ate from the tree, they knew what they had done. What did they do? The scripture says that they ran and they hide. They ran and they hid from God. In fact, there's this heart, sort of heartbreaking scene where God, it says that God is walking through the garden in the cool of the evening and he's calling out to them. And he's saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? So you don't get this God who's just like furious and angry. You get this God who's pursuing and is reaching out and is saying, why are you alienating yourself from me? Why are you hiding from me? Why are you running from me? I, wanna, I want you to be in relationship with me. I want to pursue you. I want to have you close to me. I made you. I nourished you. I put you in this garden. I desire to have you with me. And, 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 it's, and it's Adam and Eve that are alienating themselves from God. They're running from him. When we, when we don't respect his authority in our life, when we don't make him the author of our life, when the author of our life doesn't have authority over life, we begin to lose. We become, become alienated from him. We, become, we lose our relationship with him. I can tell you, I, I know what this feels like. I've been in that position. I've been Adam running from God in the garden and God pursuing and saying, Brent, where are you? I don't ever want to be in that position again. I never want to find myself in that situation again where I'm the God of my own life, where I have my self-made laws that I try to pursue myself. 
I relish, I relish the joy of being in relationship with God. It's not, it is not, it doesn't constrain you, it doesn't chain you, it doesn't bind you, it liberates you, it frees you, it makes you stronger and more powerful than you could have ever imagined before. When you have, when you allow God to be the authority over your life, when you allow the author to have authority over your life. So number one, it alienates us from God's self-worship. Number two, alienates us from those we love. How many of you know that when there are two people in a relationship, both of whom are the God of their own domain, and you put them together under one roof, there's going to be some conflict? Yeah? No? No conflict? Come on. Come on, you married couples. You know, right? I always say there's, there are no such thing as marriage problems. There are just personal problems that people bring to a marriage, right? The problem is we, everybody comes, and it doesn't have to be a marriage, just a marriage. It could be friendship, be family, whatever. You come, and, it's, and, and you bring in your eye. You're bringing your me. You're bringing your, like, I'm in charge of my stuff. And you're running into somebody else who's in charge of their stuff. And the problem is that these two things are not going to gel right. We have uh, some friends in Los Angeles that, um, that got married um, many years ago. And they, are, they were, at their wedding, just one of the most beautiful couples you could have ever imagined. The wedding was beautiful. The joy, the fun, the laughter, incredible, just incredible. Um, and we've, we've been in touch with them over the years. And what, what has happened in their relationship is, is so sad and troubling to, to all of their friends because what has happened is they both are always right, but they don't always agree. But they're both 100% right all the time, right? And so what has happened is there's no big blow-ups, hasn't, you know, there hasn't been any, like, catastrophes, but they've just slowly alienated themselves from one another over the years. Their relationship is cold. Their relationship is distant. They're under the same roof, but they're like ghosts passing in the night. They just, they don't talk to each other. They don't like each other. They don't know each other anymore because neither of them have submitted themselves to the authority of God or submitted their relationship to the authority of God. They're both under their own authority, and they will not they, they refuse to let go of that authority, and they refuse to come together under the banner of God. And it's a sad, sad state of affairs. But that's what happens when we, when we, when we engage in self-worship, when we're in charge. We alienate ourselves from one another. That doesn't have to be the case, by the way. If you're, a, if you're engaged or you're married or even just friendships or family, if you can submit those relationships to God... And let him be the author. It's not going to make it perfect. But you're at least going to both be striving for the same thing. I mean, I, I can tell you, I praise God for the day that my wife and I, before we got married, you know, we were both, we were both, we were both in charge. We were both large and in charge of our own stuff, right? Um, both stubborn, mainly me. She was always nice and sweet. But, but we, we, would got, we, we, we would hit these impasses. And finally, one day, we, we held hands, and I'll never forget the day. We held, I asked her, I said, can I pray for us? Can I just pray for us right now? I'd never done that before in a relationship, never. And I thought she might just be like, no, that's, what are you doing? That's so weird. What is your problem? She was like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm like, oh, okay, let's do it. So then we prayed. From that day on, I'm telling you, things began to change dramatically because we submitted our relationship to God. We both said, I'm not in charge anymore. You're in charge, God. And we're giving our relationship to you. So it doesn't only alienate us from God. It doesn't only alienate us from those we love. It also alienates us 
from our fellow human being. Our fellow human being. And this is the last one. Um, conflict arises in the world around us when, whenever anyone on the planet considers themselves superior to anyone else. So the history of the world is the history of conflict based on self-worship. Everyone is their own God. In the history of the planet, we have never experienced a single year without conflict, bloody conflict, somewhere on the globe. 75 million people were killed, were killed in World War II. 55 million killed in the European colonization of the Americas. 40 million killed in the Taiping Rebellion. 18 million killed in World War I. 9 million killed in the Holocaust. And it goes on and on and on like this to the dawn of time. All of the ills that we see on, around the globe, terrorism, genocide, slavery, oppression, injustice, murder, the caste system, the class system, educational inequality, racism, ethnocentrism, whatever it is, they're all tied to the same impulse, the impulse for self-worship, the impulse to say that I'm superior to you. I am better than you. I am in charge of you. I don't, I'm not under authority. I'm in authority. In fact, the story of the very first murder is in Genesis 4. It's Cain and Abel's, it's Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, right? Because they couldn't get along with their fellow man. Genesis 4 says, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? You see it immediately transmitting throughout history. That's the nature of humanity, right? I am in charge. I am in control. I am not submitted to God. Now, if this was the end of the story, you guys would leave here very depressed, very despondent today, and you might not ever come back. You might just go, wow, that was really depressing. Thank you for sharing, diagnosing the problems of the world. That really was helpful. Here's the good news. Whenever God diagnoses the problem he also presents the solution. He also gives us the cure. Babe, if you want to come up and play, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to close this out. How do we then reverse this curse, right? How do we turn this around? How do we stop the trajectory of humanity and, and, and the destruction of ourselves and our society and our planet? Do we do, like global counseling sessions where we all come together and talk it out, right? Do we get around a campfire and sing Kumbaya together, arm in arm, right? Maybe we just, maybe we try harder. Maybe that's the answer. Everybody just try. Come on, just try. Come on, come on, come on. Just try harder, right? We've done all of that. And that doesn't work, and we know that. We've got every moral teacher in the history of the world basically saying the same thing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we don't do that. And we can't seem to find it within ourselves to do that even in our own homes, in our own schools, in our own neighborhoods, in our own cities, in our own country, and certainly not around the globe. So how do we reverse the curse? How do we change course? Well, the biblical answer may surprise you. And the answer is, we don't. We don't have the ability. We don't have the capacity we don't have the power on our own to change ourselves. We don't have the fortitude. We don't have the ability. We may have all of the knowledge that we need, but we don't have the moral integrity or the moral fabric to change the way that we interact as a society 
as individuals over the long haul. So what is the answer? The biblical answer is so powerful and so surprising and so inspiring. And the biblical answer is this. The only remedy for humanity's self-worship is God's self-sacrifice. The problem began when humans tried to substitute their humanity and grasp at God's deity. In other words, man wanted to become God. And the only remedy for a world where humanity is striving to become God is for God to become man. The only remedy is when God says, I'm going to sacrifice. If the universal problem is humanity's self-worship, the universal solution is God's self-sacrifice. This is the great surprise. This is the great reversal. This is what separates the Christian faith from every other religious expression because it does not come down to you. It does not come down to you changing your morality. It does not come down to you stepping up and being stronger and being better and being more fervent. It comes down to an act of humility and humiliation by God. It is based upon that single act in His infinite grace, the incarnate God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, becoming one of us. That's what reverses the curse. The scripture says, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. The serpent said to Eve, I want, don't you want to be like God? This is God saying, I'm going to become a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Adam and Eve plucked the fruit from the tree out of self-indulgence and pride. Jesus became, as Nina Simone sings, that strange fruit that hung on a tree for us. I can't change me. You cannot change you. Only God can do that. God defeats our pride with his humility. He defeats our selfishness with his sacrifice. He defeats our tyranny with his tears. He defeats our lasciviousness with his love. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Jesus threw himself in the garden of Gethsemane, where his body was racked with grief and sorrow, fear and shame. He was wounded, the scriptures say, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. The answer to the pride of man is the humility of Christ. The answer to sin is the gospel. We've been studying in my, in my guys group, my life group, uh, a study by a pastor and an author named Eric Mason. And I love this quote from him. He says, we need the gospel. We need it more than books. We need it more than studies. We need it more than groups. We need the life-giving, identity-establishing, purpose-defining gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And that answer is not a pat answer. It's not a, God just, Lord, just bless him. Touch him. Help him, Lord. No. What happens is, we receive the grace and the mercy in our own lives, and then we become emissaries for light, for justice, 
for peace. We become the standard bearers. We become the body of Christ going out in the world and making those changes, addressing poverty, addressing injustice, standing up for what's right, defeating uh, uh, tyranny. We become what God has placed in us. We become his standard bearers. We become the vanguard of justice and hope and peace and light in the world. That's the gospel. The gospel is God can transform you. You can't transform yourself. God can transform you, and by his power, then we go out and bring hope to the whole world. So today I want to do something I don't normally do. Maybe I should do it more, but I want to give an invitation to everybody here. If, if, if you haven't experienced that in your life, if you haven't experienced the transforming power of the gospel in your life, maybe you've been religious all your life, maybe you've gone to church all your life, but you haven't experienced that internal life-transforming power of Jesus Christ in your life, I want to give you the opportunity to experience that today. Maybe you did, maybe you did experience it at some point, but over time you've just sort of fallen off, you've just faltered, you've fallen away, you've let it go. I want to give you an opportunity today to say, God, I need you in my life. I am tired of trying to live by my own rules. I'm tired of trying to be the king of my own life. I'm tired of trying to be the God of my own existence, of trying to control everything around me. I need you. I need you, God, in my life to transform me, to bring me hope, to bring peace, to bring justice, to restore me. Today, I want to give you that option. I want to give you that opportunity. I want to challenge you to take it. Take it. And let God, let God, let God work in you in ways that, that he, you know, you've never let him work before. It doesn't mean you, you, won't, you will not walk out of here with a halo. You will not have wings. You will not, you will not walk out of here in everything totally different. But you will walk out changed. If you could cross that threshold, invite God into your life, and let him be the boss of you. Let him be the boss of you. Let him be your dad. Let him be your father. Let him love you. He's with you right now. Even if you haven't uh, turned to him or obeyed him or followed him, he is with you. He is in pursuit of you. He's following after you and saying, where are you? Because I'm right here. Just turn around and I'm right here with you. I want to invite you to to, to, to accept him into your heart today. Let's close our eyes.